Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. Peace to this house. The Lord gives strength to his people. Our theme for this afternoon is, by your baptism, you are God's child. Our text is Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. We are going to look at verses 26 and 27 for this devotion, which read, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. When you think of adoption, what do you think of? For many, it's this beautiful picture of a young couple, husband and wife, coming together, maybe at the hospital, looking for that almost perfect baby. Did you know that many adoption websites nowadays, you can go on the website and filter exactly what you're looking for? If you want a baby that is a certain ethnicity, a certain age, a certain family makeup, and any number of other things. You can go to that website, put it in, and they will spit back out a list of kids in the area that are available for adoption. These infant adoptions uh, make up about 62% of adoptions in the country. Uh, statistics are debated a little bit, but most people agree it's about 62%. That's not at all what I think of when I think of adoption. I was adopted at about seven years old. Um, full of life experiences and trauma and background and a whole bunch of things already built into me by the time I'm seven years old. I also have the kind of the cool story of having many of my biological siblings adopted at different times and different ages, um, all under the same roof, but we all came together over the course of like 12 years. So it's a pretty neat story. Um, but what type of parent is prepared to kind of deal with a situation like that. I think of my dad, one of the first times he was disciplining one of our siblings, and he was you know, correcting and providing feedback, and my sibling went to the pantry, uh, opened the pantry, pulled out a brown pick-and-save grocery bag, put his favorite teddy bear in that bag, put some of his clothes and, and key items in the bag, and walked to the front door, opened the door, started bawling and crying uncontrollably, walked out the door, shut the door, and started walking down the street, leaving, because he thought, I messed up, I made a mistake, who would want me? Uh, I think of another one of my siblings, had big problems with lying, uh, couldn't be honest. Whenever there was a, a difficult situation, uh, the default was to, to lie. Uh, because if my dad, my mom, whoever, if they knew the truth, who would want that child? Or another sibling who uh, is prone to comparison uh, at the expense of others. Um, because if that child is the best, the greatest, they wouldn't possibly abandon that child because they're the best. Um, all of these traumas, all of these things, when you could have this 
little baby that you can kind of mold from the beginning seems a lot easier. It takes a special individual or a special couple to want to adopt and go through all of that trauma with children. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of love and a lot of patience. Are these descriptions of our behavior, our thoughts, and our attitudes? Who would want us? Make no mistake, we are far from perfect. We may not pack up a bag, clean our office out with a pick-and-save grocery bag, and walk out the door when uh, something bad happens. But do we use our gifts and talents to the fullest each and every day? Or do we settle for good enough or fall back on our natural talents when those tedious tasks that don't fill our cup come across our desk, our, our table, uh, our home, do we give them the attention that God would want us to give them? Or do we make it good enough to skate by? We may not be compulsive liars, but do we use our words and actions, both giving and receiving, in the kindest possible way? Uh, when we have to have conversations that are tough or uh, maybe rebuking someone or encouraging them? Do we do it with tactfulness and love being our motivation? Or do we do it to kind of put someone in their place and get them in line? Or maybe you're on the other end where really part of your call is to have those difficult conversations and we duck or dodge them because they're hard and difficult and I don't like confrontation. Maybe you're not constantly comparing yourself to others at the expense of them, but do we judge more than we should? Do we gossip more often than we should? Um, do you think more highly of yourself than you ought to? I know I do sometimes. Or maybe you're on the other end, where you constantly doubt, Lord, why am I here? I don't have the gifts and talents to do this. I'm not confident. You made a mistake. Your, your heart is full of doubt and fear, questioning whether or not God made a mistake. We have all of these things, all of these hurts, these imperfections, these traumas in our lives. And maybe you're guilty of some other sin that lies beneath the surface that I haven't covered. Uh, but the reality is, is we are all broken and in need of a Savior. When I think of God, our loving Father, adopting us, I don't think of parents waiting eagerly outside the hospital room, waiting to see that seemingly perfect little baby. I see him looking down at us, broken people with hurts, with trauma, with sinfulness, and looking right at us and saying, I want them. I want you. God chose you. In baptism, our sins are washed away, and we are clothed, clothed with Christ. Even Mr. Warbucks or Mr. Stacks, if you're into the new version, could not afford that type of outfit for Annie. Isaiah 64 tells us that we are unclean and our good acts are like filthy, like filthy rags. Baptism washed us clean and clothed us with Christ's righteousness. There is no greater treasure. God now sees us as perfect in our robes of righteousness. So who would want you? Our loving Savior wants you. Each and every day, he wants you. 
1 John 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. We are intimately connected with Christ. He is our robe of righteousness. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Amen. We will continue with the verses 3 and 4 of hymn 502. We pray. God of mercy, this midday moment of rest is your welcome gift. Bless the work we have begun. Make good its defects and let us finish it in a way that pleases you. Grant this through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We join together in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Blessing, honor, thanksgiving, and praise, more than we can utter or understand, be to you. O holy and glorious Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by all angels, all mankind, and all creatures, forever and ever.
All right, thank you. Um, let me just piggyback off of Mr. Galecki's devotion uh, there. Uh, the adoption, right, is a rescue. It is a picture of salvation, right? And um, uh, there, are, there are legal documents attached to an adoption, right? And there's, there's ramifications to the, the legality of this, right? Uh, that person now is, uh, has to be taken care of. Parents have to sign certain documents for them, but it also means that they have the full rights as sons, so that, that Galatians picture of, of baptism, right, it talks about you are all sons in Christ, and I think this was a mistake um, when translations say sons and daughters. I get the sons and daughters thing, like that language changes and, and we mean sons and daughters, but there they meant sons. You are all sons. Why? Because if you're the free son, you get to inherit the estate. Everybody else is in the slave class. They don't get to inherit this estate. And so for all of you, men and women, to be sons meant something in that culture. Right? And so th there, was a, there, was, there was a legal right going on here. And how do you apply this? It's real simple. You, um, you take your baptismal certificate. And if you're, if you're young enough that your mother still has it in a scrapbook, uh, politely but firmly tell her that it belongs to you and not her. Because it's not a keepsake. It's something that is a part of your reality. And I would suggest that you frame it and you put it on your bedroom wall. And uh, when you leave your bedroom in the morning, you look up there and you say, number one, that is an historic reality that can't be undone. So on April 16, 1978, in St. Louis County, Missouri, this guy was baptized, and that cannot be undone. You can't unring that bell, just like I can't undo yesterday's football scores or Friday's stock market prices. This is a historical reality that happened to me at a specific time in a specific place. And I know that because here's the official documentation. And nobody can take that away from me. So I don't know what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. Uh, or I should say uh, Wednesday, when I wake up and look at my baptismal certificate. I may lose my life. I may lose my health. I may lose my children. I may be Joe. But this world cannot take away the historic reality of my adoption into the family of God. So bring it on, world. You know? Every day, bring it on, world. The second thing that baptismal certificate does for me, and I hope for you, is you look at it and you say, that's my reality, is that I am a saint in the blood of Christ. It's not, today's a new day. And I'm not that sinful jerk I was yesterday. I'm something different. I have been resurrected as something new. I'm going to go to bed at night as a sinner saint. We'll do it all over again tomorrow. But every day is a new day in my baptismal reality. Right? So something to think about when you teach that to your children, uh, when you... Um, buy baptismal certificates for your church. Um, when you, you know, you, you, you have a little banner with a little lamb and the date, and that's cool. Maybe you could get your, your ladies group to also buy a nice frame. There's all these little things that you could say, this is an official reality sort of thing, right? And it's a daily, it's a daily, not just a reminder, like, oh, that happened. It's a daily reminder of who you are. It's an identity kind of thing. Bring it on, world. Seriously, you cannot take away my baptismal reality. You can't take away my inheritance. I think that's pretty cool. All right. Um, 
So the Old Testament, right, it's always going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. The, the reality is there, uh, the shadow is there, but then the reality comes. So I believe uh, Passover, um, you know, is a shadow of Holy Communion, and I believe all these baptismal stories, specifically the, the purification rites, are fulfilled in baptism. But then we have this strange little interlude where things come to a head, where we have John the Baptizer, John the Baptizer, because you, as all you know, uh, John was uh, not Baptist, but Lutheran, right? So we call him John the Baptizer. Yeah. John the Baptizer um, is kind of like the last Old Testament figure and the first New Testament figure, isn't he? Right? Um, he just, he, you know, he just, he just looks like and I bet smells like an Old Testament prophet. Right? He dresses like an Old Testament prophet. He speaks and it's an Old Testament prophet because he's pointing ahead. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, of course, John has a lot to do with baptism because uh, when we think about um, you know, the, the question of a, can a baby believe, um, there's some debate on whether we should use this passage or not, um, but John the baptizer leaps in his mother's womb in reaction to Mary's word of God. So at the very least, um, an unborn child can react to words, right? Maybe, maybe more on that later. But John the baptizer, of course, is tied to baptism because, you know, he baptizes. Now, this is not completely unusual to have in the ancient world these cleansing rituals. It's a natural thing in the ancient world, right, to have this cleansing sort of thing, to have a meal sort of thing, um, to have, to have a, a holy, holy presence in, in a temple kind of thing. These are things that are to have sacrifices. These are things that are not unique to Christianity, right? And so some, some crazy dude dunking people out in the Jordan River, that's not totally crazy, but it is a little bit of an oddity enough that people are curious about this. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? Well, it's the same as baptism for me, right? Um, is, baptism is th something of faith. Yeah, it creates faith. Um, it sustains faith in a certain way. If, if the word of God was there, it's all wrapped up into the word. And here's the key. Repentance is a part of faith. Let me go down that road. Uh, we, we have done a disservice to people. This is where we get a little, we get a little uh, uh, ahead of our skis there when we, when we talk about like etymologies and uh, uh, words and, and pastors are so quick and rightfully so sometimes to, to tell you about the Greek and the Latin and all that kind of stuff. Um, that repentance means to turn. It's true. Um, <clears throat> but we leave the impression in catechism class, you turn to God, then he loves you. Yeah? Then you'll get forgiveness. You have to repent. Now, if I say you have to repent in order to be saved, is that a true statement? Sure. But I think the best way to think about it is repentance is wrapped up into faith, right? Repentance is a part of faith. And, and the Holy Spirit gives faith. That means the Holy Spirit repents you. The Holy Spirit turns you. Uh, he turn, he's the one that does that. God does that through his alien work of law and suffering. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is a part of God's action towards and so when, when John the, the baptizer is baptizing, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a baptism of repentance, because Jesus is coming, 
right? Like, you, you should be really scared of this. You need to be washed, man, right? And, and yet there is, there is a, a promise there that I would assume would have John, John would have done in his preaching. Certainly the image of the Lamb of God is enough of a gospel preaching that it's, there's still a promise there, right? And so we have this curious situation. What about somebody who was baptized by John and then, and then died, you know, or never heard about Jesus or didn't get Jesus' baptism? Is that, does that person still have the effects of that? Well, sure, right? Because there's faith there. I'm sure, right? But it's still not, it's still the, the shadow. We're still not there at the reality, right? We're still not there at the reality. So um, then comes Jesus in this very curious thing that uh, we heard about on, um, on Sunday, yesterday, and that is the baptism of our Lord. And so Jesus comes down to his cousin and, uh, into the Jordan River and says, uh, uh, you need to baptize me. And by the way, baptism just means to wash. So by the way, when I say I baptize you, uh, like to a child, I'm saying I wash you. It's a gospel word. I wash you. Uh, so, so, so this grown man says to his cousin, wash me. <laughs> and uh, John's kind of like, okay, um, I'm not going to do that. And the reason for that is, I don't know if you know this, but you're perfect. And I'm not. And so it should be the other way around. And then Jesus says, silly John, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John says, okay. And he never asked the question we all wished he asked is, yeah, but what does that mean to fulfill all righteousness? Right? Because this, this is a very difficult, difficult thing uh, to, tr to try to figure out. Uh, by the way, I forgot one thing. Uh, imagine, imagine that we're going we're gonna to freeze. We're going to come back to this. Here's something that, that I think is a this is very important. When, when we try to deal with like that repentance faith thing, and we hear God say, repent, and we're like, well, then it must be on me. Yeah. But he also says, be perfect. <laughs> and he says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. When God gives these commands, he knows full well you can't do them. So, but he still gives the command Right? And then he fulfills the command for you. So here's a phrase that I think should be tattooed on your heart. Whatever God commands of you, he gives to you in Christ. So he gives you the perfect righteousness. He repents you. He gives you the faith. Can you reject it? Yes, you can. Uh, that, is, that is theoretically possible. But he's the one that does it for you. Okay. Uh, back to, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what I'm going to say is, uh, is, is not mine, and it might be wrong. Um, Luther hints at this, so I'll pull the Luther card on you if you get mad at me. Um, although it did, this did pass the uh, doctrinal committee at Northwestern Publishing House, so uh, hopefully I'm on good grounds here. I think what Jesus is doing when he gets baptized is he is, um, he is putting himself in our place and he's being perfect in our place. And when... And when he does that, there is what we call the happy exchange, right? That my sin is exchanged for his, for his righteousness. So Luther famously say, uh, when, when, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he sanctified the Jordan River and all water as a washing away of, of baptismal, a baptismal a washing away. 
So Jesus is oxyclean. Jesus goes into the water as oxyclean. You're the dirty socks. And you come out white, and he comes out with your dirt and goes to the sink. That's crude and crass, but I think it's actually what Luther was after there. Right? And so why does Jesus have to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness? What does that mean? We're not really quite sure, but it's the story of salvation is right there. And so he is making baptism something that, that is valuable and a true washing away for you. And the only way that can be is if there's a death and resurrection. If the death and resurrection is an exchange. And so I think it's healthy and I think it's fine to say we go in sinful and we come out righteous, right, in a very profound way. Yeah. All right, so uh, John the Baptizer, interesting guy, no doubt, right? Yes, okay. Ah, all right. Okay, oh, sorry. Let's talk Romans 6. Um, I think that this should be the place where you start your discussion on baptism. <laughs> um, because I think it's, it's, the, it's the place where we have, uh, we, we have the, the most detailed account of what happens at baptism. And it is a death and resurrection. So St. Paul is famously going to say, Don't you know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have died with him and been buried him, with him and have been resurrected with him? By the way, I think this is helpful and it dawned on me, I don't know, like in my 40s, like I'm a slow learner here, that being reborn, being regenerated, and this death and resurrection thing is just the same, it's just the same thing, just described in different ways. It's talking about salvation, and it's talking about salvation of somebody who cannot save themselves. So you can't, this is what Nicodemus was after, right? So Nicodemus, Jesus goes to Nicodemus and says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, how could I do that? I can't go back into my mother's womb, right? That's the point. Of course you can't do it, right? How can the, how can the dead rise? They can't do that. Yeah, that's the point. That God is, is, is going to do this. And this is very important because um, not only do we say that, oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus did all the saving. We didn't do anything. We also have to, we have to talk about that in our sanctification as well, that I'm not on my way to something that's better. Like, I'm not a sinner on my way to being a saint. I already am. And the only thing you can do with the sinner is kill him. The dude needs to be reborn. He needs to be resurrected. There is no, there is no sense of him, him getting better. Like, if you reform a sinner, you still have a sinner. He's just a reformed sinner, and probably super annoying because he's self-righteous. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the analogy there is of death and resurrection, or if you want, being unborn and then being born again. Yeah? Let's play with that a little bit, and then we'll get back to Rome, the argument in Romans chapter 6. Okay. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> let's talk spiritual growth for a second. So, uh, I, I'm a, grew up kind of 80s, 90s, and then early 2000s like that. That was my, you know, formative years, um, and early ministry years. And we were obsessed, if you're old enough, we were obsessed with spiritual growth in our saints. In my vicar year, we had 
this, we had this big book, this congregation of 200, but we had this big book of charts uh, and Excel sheets of everybody's gifts in the congregation. We did all of these gift inventories and all that kind of stuff. We never did anything with it, but we had the information, right? We were obsessed with spiritual growth, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but here's the deal with growth. You always look back upon growth. You can never feel it in the moment. You can look back to it, and you can look forward to it, but you never can grow in the moment, right? So even if you, even if you have that, that great epiphany moment where you're like, man, I really grew today, it's already in the past. Let's think about a little boy who desperately wants to get tall. And so mom does the little pencil mark on the uh, door frame. Right? And he really wants to get tall. And so like a half an hour later, he says, mom, can you measure me again? And the next day, can you measure me again? And the next week, can you measure me again? And mom's like, dude, you're just this, it doesn't work that way, right? And he's, you know, he's eating spinach and he's, he's stretching out and stuff. He just can't quite get, he can't grow. And man, is it frustrating in the moment. He can't just grow, right? But then, you know, whatever, he loses interest for a little bit or whatever. And then, you know, three months, four months pass. And they measure again and he grew but he can only look back at that growth. Now, he gets about 14, and uh, he starts thinking about other things in his head. And, but now mom, in nostalgia, wants to, she wants to finish the deal. So she's like, come over here on his birthday, let's measure you, right? Like, ah, oh, mom, wants to, let's measure you. The point is, is that the boy stopped caring if he grew. He got lost in other things. He could still look back upon his growth, but he stopped caring and obsessing about the growth. I wonder if this is true about spiritual growth as well. Should you have a plan for growth? Yeah, you should eat your spinach. But you shouldn't be obsessed with it because you're never going to find it in the moment you're going to get frustrated. But you can look back upon it. But here's the thing about spiritual growth. You're mature enough to stop caring about your spiritual growth because you're too busy lost in just being the saint that God has made you to be. Yeah? So this is, going to, this is going to be then what we talk about spiritual formation and spiritual growth. While you can look back and say, oh yeah, God put me in that place and I grew from that. God put that person in my life, that event in my life, and I grew. In the moment, it's not about growing, it's about dying and rising. It's about dying to your sinful nature and being resurrected by Christ to live a new life. Because the sinner doesn't grow, the sinner can only, can only die. The, the sinner can only die. So it's a different way of thinking about ethics and growth, and it's, it's subtle, but I think it's really important. So if you're familiar with Romans chapter 6, St. Paul is actually making an argument in Romans. Uh, let, let me give the, the long version of the argument, and then we'll get to, to chapter 6. St. Paul's thesis statement in Romans is that the, the righteous live by faith. And 
uh, he expands that thesis statement in, in uh, uh, chapter 3 uh, when he says, do you see that there's two kinds of righteousness? There's a righteousness by law and a righteousness by faith. And, and Paul doesn't talk this way, but I think it's helpful to think about two systems. So you have system number one, which is a righteousness by law, and system number two is a righteousness by faith. The righteousness by law system is that you're right. That's all righteousness means. You're right. It's all justification means. You're just. You're right and just according to some law. This is normally how the world works. If you do a bunch of bad stuff, there's a good chance that you're going to get in trouble. If you bunch, do a bunch of good stuff, there's a good chance you'll be rewarded. In an unjust world, there are exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, if you practice a lot on the piano, you become a decent pianist. If you don't practice, you're not going to amount to much. So you are right, you are valuable, you are just according to a law, whatever that law may be. This is uh, necessary in a broken world. It's how the world uh, generally works, but it's terrible for love. So imagine bringing your uh, newborn home from the hospital in a little car seat, and you put the car seat down on the front porch, and you hand over and you say, hey, whenever you are uh, ready to follow the rules of this house and participate in chores, we will love you. Um, knock when you're ready. <laughs> and you close the door. Right? So somehow we think, though, that our relationship with God is a righteousness-by-law relationship, that we're in that system. I do this, and then God either curses or blesses me according to the law. In fact, we kind of want it, don't we? We kind of want it. That's all twisted in God. System number two, the righteousness by faith, is the righteousness, always a gift, is earned by Christ and given to you. So you are passively righteous. You're passively righteous. Not actively righteous. You're passively righteous because Christ gives you the righteousness. This is a gift system. All right, so the wages of sin is a, or, or the system of righteousness by law is a wage system. God is no longer loving father. He's the boss who pays you the proper wages. The righteousness by faith system is a, is a gift system. It's a love system. So St. Paul goes to this argument, and by the way, he comes to, comes to a head uh, in Romans chapter 6, where he says, and the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we make the kids memorize that, and we pull it out of its context. When we say, what Paul is saying here is, the righteousness by law is a wage. You want to be in a wage system? You can be in a wage system, but the wages of sin is death. The righteousness by faith system, that's a gift system. And guess what? The gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then to apply that, especially to adults, isn't to say, but here you are trying to put yourself back into a righteousness by law system. Salary, looks, politics, whatever law system you're trying to find value and rightness in. Yeah? Well, if you want to put yourself into that system, that's a wage system, and the wages for your sin is death. And I don't care. I don't care how righteous you, you think your cause is, there's always something you've left undone. Uh, here's some good law preaching. Um, 
when people are, you know, they're whatever, whatever cause they're into, right? And we're all into a cause. Um, to say that doesn't save you from, from all the things that you have left undone. And um, you're a part of the problem. You are a part of the problem. You are a part of the problem. And you say, well, I haven't done, I'm really big on stopping human trafficking. Well, good for you, but guess what? Human trafficking does not exist unless there's a market for cheap labor. Now look at your shoes and your iPhone. Don't talk to me about trying to be righteous by some cause. I can rip you apart in three seconds. And the point here is that you don't feel guilty about participating in this world. Where are you going to go? What country are you going to be a part of? What company are you going to, what company are you going to frequent, right? They're all corrupt. What are you going to do, go off the grid to be righteous? Well, then you haven't loved your neighbor. There's no, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about your Nikes and your iPhone. What I am saying is don't try to find your righteousness in that cause that you have for that day because you're a part of the problem. Your righteousness has to be a gift. It has to be from outside of you, from outside of you. Okay. So um, wage system versus gift system. This is really powerful stuff. And it, and it, and it colors that, that famous phrase of uh, the wages of sin is death. Okay. So um, if, if I can't be righteous by law, then, then what then of spiritual growth and stuff like that? Well, that's when you look back upon it. And God was doing battle with you, your sinner saint. And maybe you got better in maturity, but at that point, who cares? Because you're too busy being a saint. That's to be a lover. Okay. St. Paul then, before he gets to the, to the end in Romans chapter 6, in chapter 5, he's like, listen, this, this grace is fantastic. Like, there's nothing bigger than grace. There's always one thing bigger than your sin, and that's God's grace. And he anticipates, he anticipates a, uh, a, a rhetorical question. Well, well then, if God is always going to, going to forgive me, and in fact, as you said, Paul, that the, the greater the, the, the sin increases, then, then God's grace and, and love increases. I'm actually doing God a favor by sinning because then he can show more love. And, and I might as well just do what I want then because, because God's always going to forgive me. He asks that rhetorical question in chapter 5, and then he answers it in chapter 6. But don't, don't you know? But don't you know that all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have, have been killed to death? resurrected in Christ. Let me give you my translation of, 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 of Romans chapter 6. They ask, shouldn't I just keep sinning because grace will increase? And St. Paul says, but that's not who you are anymore. But that's not who you are anymore. Don't you know that you were baptized and that sinful nature was killed, buried, crucified, and something new has been resurrected, the new person. Now, think about the applications in your preaching and your teaching for this uh, and discipline in the school. And I've got to be very careful here. But um, how, how many times do we, we get frustrated with people for not changing? Why can't, they just, why can't they just fix that problem? I've given them the information, forgetting that they have a bound will. They're bound to sin, right? And I wonder sometimes if, if a better tactic, instead of saying, why can't you do this impossible thing, right? By the way, it, it's helpful. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's helpful to think of sin as an addiction. So I know what not to say to my wife. Um, but I'm addicted 
to that, that high of self-righteousness, that I was right and she was wrong. And like a true addict, um, I can't stop even as the high gets less and less and less each time. I'm working on it, but I'll always be the alcoholic, even if I haven't taken, taken a drink in 30 years. And I know there'll be a hangover, and I know it won't be worth it. And I know this as I'm walking to the bedroom to say it. I'll even say it to myself. So you get frustrated with that kid. You're like, it's like, alcoholic, stop being an alcoholic. Well, I don't know that that's going to work, right? And so sometimes you have to say, it's not who you are. It's not who you are anymore. Now, this can be devastating law, right? When a kid comes in, and, and now it's not just he did something wrong, but he has disappointed you, right? It's not who you are anymore. I thought better of you. So you've got to be careful here, but if you have the gospel there, I think that's a better way of thinking about, about our true reality of sinner and saints. You're like, I know you messed up, but ultimately this is not, is not who you are in Christ. It's not who you are anymore. Tomorrow's going to be a new day. Look at that baptismal certificate on your bedroom wall. Okay, so later, uh, later in uh, chapter 6, right? So baptism is a death and resurrection. Who dies? The sinful nature. Who is resurrected? the new person, Christ living in me. This is my ultimate reality. Later there in, um, later there in chapter, uh, chapter 6, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for that. In chapter 6, uh, St. Paul's going to talk about the simile. I think I have made another one more. There we go. Okay. The simile. Uh, the simile, simile is Latin for simultaneous. And so we are simultaneously sinner and saints all at the same time. So the way he teaches to the kids is, says, you're 100% you're sinner and 100% saint. And I know the math doesn't work out, but it sure explains your life. That one moment you can be a delight and the next moment not so much, right? So I am always a sinner. I'm always a sinner. And yet I'm also always a saint. I'm not half and half. I'm not on my way from sinner to saint. This is my reality. And the only thing I can do with the sinner is kill him to death. He cannot be changed. So the language which St. Paul uses is slavery. Now, we've got to be careful today, right, because in a, in a, in a post-Civil War, uh, modern slavery uh, world, that word obviously has some baggage. But in the ancient world, you were either a landowner or you were a slave. And you could be a doctor and a slave. You could be an engineer and a slave. You could be a worker. You could be, it would be more like a, like a worker sometimes. And so we have to sometimes explain that away. Like just St. Paul's using different language here. But we don't want to lose the slave language because then we lose the point he's making here. What he says here is the sinner does not have a free will, but the sinner is like a slave who has a master. The sinner has a master, and the master is sin. That means the sinner doesn't get to say, I'm going to do this today, because the master sin says, no, you're going to sin, pal, because it's my will, not your will. So we've got to be careful here, but the sinful, the, the sinful nature is the master, and the will is sinful, right? And so you're always going to sin. In a similar way, the, the righteous saint 
also the master. And so if the righteous person come, comes up and says, I want to sin today, and the master says, tough luck, you don't, have, you don't have a choice. A righteous person just is a righteous person. So a sinner always sins, and a, and a saint always saints. And there's nothing that they can do about that. And so again, it's not about overcoming sin, it's about killing the sinful nature and resurrecting the new nature. And how do you do that? Law and gospel. And it's mostly God working on you. There's a battle there. And every day is a new day after the battle. Okay, so how does this get, get played out, this, this symbol sort of thing? I think this is very profound when it comes to ethics and freedom. I already told you that a book that should have been written 20 years ago is, is the difference between Galatian freedom in particular and American freedom. When we think about freedom, we think about freedom uh, in, a, in, a, in a very curved inward way. So I just do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, as often as I want. Right? Freedom is, is I get to do this. I'm free from governmental or whatever forces to do what I want because I have a free will. It's very modern, very American, very evangelical. And I'm happy to live in American freedom. But biblical freedom is something different. So when, you know, when, you, when July 4th comes around and uh, don't quote Paul who says it's for freedom you have been set free and wave the flag. Not the same thing. In fact, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that you are a slave to righteousness. And so freedom from sin is actually a slave to righteousness. Now how can this be? Well, it works out this way. If you are free from sin, you don't have any other choice but then to be a loving, righteous saint. Now, if you say to yourself, but um, it's, it's my choice, I want to, to, I want to do what I want to do, that's true freedom. But your choice is sin, then that's like the addict saying that it's my body, I can do what I want with it, I'm a free person. So you're you know, let's say your cousin's addicted to heroin and you get together with your friends and relatives and you're like, stop doing heroin, it's bad for you. And he's like, I like doing heroin, it's my body, I can do what I want with them, I'm free, don't tell me what to do. And you're like, that's not freedom, pal. It's, it's like the worst kind of prison because you think it's freedom. Worst kind of prison is when you think it's freedom. So when you say, I, I'm free to sin, you're an addict. <laughs> You're not free any more than the heroin addict is free. Yeah. So if freedom from addiction is sobriety and freedom from sin is righteousness and there's no other option, then you can rightfully say you're a slave to righteousness. So it's not like this free will where I choose kind of thing. So that sounds rough to us because we want to choose it. We want to choose it. But to truly be free is to be free even, even from your, to truly be free is to be free from sin. It's, it's tr truly to be free is to be what God intended you to be, and that is a saint. And isn't that great, great when you have those moments when you just saint? When you, when, 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 when you open a door for a little old lady for no other reason than it's a thing to do. When you find great joy in something in the classroom or, or in your ministry or whatever, and you look back and you're like, I didn't do it because I had to, 
I didn't do it because I wanted to get credit. I didn't do it because it was my job. I just did it. Those are good days. And they're sometimes rare, but those are good days. That's what St. Paul's after here when he says, don't you know you're baptized? You're righteous. And righteous people, they do righteous things. This is who you are. This is who you are. Right? Uh, and tomorrow will be a battle, but this is who you ultimately are. Okay. Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. Yeah, the free will, the free will idea, right? Or better yet, free choice, right? right. The boundage of free choice. And to say, um, I, I think, let me give you a couple sentences. Yeah. One is the distinguishing between things above and things below, as you know, right? So right. things above are, you know, um, can I choose to sin or not sin? Can I choose to be loved or not loved? No, right? You, you don't really, you don't really have that option. Then things below are like, can I choose to be, can I choose Burger King or a salad? Now, when I teach the kids this, then I turn this way and I go, but do I really? <laughs> Free will is a bit of an illusion. And by the way, if you're a Darwinist and you're authentic, you don't believe in free will. Uh, Stanford philosopher just came out in New York Times or Atlantic or one of those said, free will is an illusion. Um, I'm not, we, we go by emotion. Like, if, if you truly had free will to overcome sin by yourself, why do you kill, why are you doing it? Don't you think we, as a, a collective group of people, would at least come, overcome genocide? <laughs> right? So, I, I think that, <clears throat> I think you can say, you have free will to a certain extent in things below, but let's be, let's be, let's be honest here. Right? Um, we go by our emotions more than our wills. And I think it's helpful to think about, like, okay, I have will, I have reason, I have, my, I have my emotions, I have my mind, all of those kinds of things. And um, will and desire, well, I mean, maybe ask them, did they, did they choose to fall in love? You know, I, I think there's, there's a way to get around there and say, I'm not sure you really have free will. Of course, the real danger there is if you if you think that you have free will and that you are able to choose God, then it's no longer love. And I like to use the analogy, once again, of the, 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 the kid in the car seat you brought home from the hospital. And you're like, did you wait for the child to make a decision to be a part of the family? No, you didn't. What you did, you, you developed the relationship of trust and love through words. And from there, you know, so-called the will is changed to be a loving will, but they didn't have a free choice to be loved or to love. Go ahead. Or is anybody, like when has it, it ever worked out for you, right? Um, like you don't, like, when have you ever made it through February in your, your New Year's resolution? Yeah, I think it's, but you're right, like, it seems to be increasing the idea of free will. At the, it was, I, I can't put my finger on why that is, because the secular world is actually saying, yeah, we don't have a free will. Come on. It's the last bastion of, I get to control something. 
that I get to be a part of this. Interesting. All right. Um, two kinds of righteousness and symbol. Any, anybody on that? On that? This, is, this is deep stuff, but I think it's something I know I hammer home every single day in high school and college. Like, got to get this, because it's just, it's so fundamental to our anthropology, who we are as human beings, and uh, so, so difficult for people to, to, to admit this true, even though it seems really obvious once you get, get to it. Okay. Changes the way you look at that kid in your classroom. This, this, is, a, this is a person that's, that is a sinner saint. Um, I don't know if I, I should expect much different, right? And so it's not so much you're teaching them to go to get better, but rather you're forming them. I, I think another book, book that needs to be written is Lutheran Formation. Um, we form our children, and education is formation. Not just trying to get them knowledge, not trying to get them a job, but formation. And, and, and Lutheran formation would be uh, the death and resurrection kind of thing, right? Law, it's just law and gospel, right? Law and gospel. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's go back to... Um, Clothing, circumcision, and, and rebirth. So we already talked about rebirth, how that, that I think is, is just really at the parallel to, to death and resurrection. Both of these things are impossible for human beings to do. All right. The clothing we've already talked about as well. I, I think this is genius of God. Like, let me, let me think about it this way. Um, so when we think about sin in the Bible, and I think just generally in, in, in the way humans think. Uh, we can think about it maybe in three categories. The first category is the forensic category. I, I trespass, and I, I broke a law, and then I have some sort of ramifications. The other one is clean, unclean. And then the other one is some sort of like, I'm sick, corruption sort of thing. Like either it's in my DNA or I have an illness, sort of a skin disease kind of thing. Now think about how God then chooses his means of grace. And what we mean by means is the means by which grace is delivered to us. Right? So God's over here and we're over here. And God's like, I want to I I reconcile this because sin and death, I want to reconcile this. I'm going to do it by Jesus living a perfect, death, a perfect life and dying a perfect death. death. The problem with that is, it's, you're in Genera, 2024, and that happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago. So how that going to get all the way over here? The means by which this grace is going to be delivered to you, word, baptism, absolution, and holy communion. The word encompasses all of them, though, right? The word is the thing. The word is the thing from the very beginning, right, as we talked about. But think about baptism, absolution, and holy communion. So absolution is kind of that forensic thing. I declare you not guilty. I forgive you your sins, right? Holy communion, as, as Ambrose said, is the medicine of immortality. It's the, it's the nutrition. It kind of corresponds to I'm sick, I need the medicine. He said, I always take communion because I'm always sick. And then baptism seems to take care of the idea of the clean-unclean. 
By the way, all of those things are very accessible to you, especially in the Mediterranean world, bread, wine, and water. So you don't have to climb a high mountain. There's no gold or platinum involved. It's very, it's very tangible and very common. Now think about what do you do with the stain? You can wash it out, and if you can't wash it out, you can cover it. That's what you do, right? That's why we have ties. Right? You cover up a stain on the shirt. Both the washing and the covering are pictures in the Bible. So the washing we've already been through, but then the, the righteous robe of Christ that covers all of your sin is really powerful as well, right? And we had, we had that from Galatians already. So just, just to point that out. Another one we didn't point out is circumcision. Circumcision has a relation to baptism in the Old Testament, and St. Paul talks about it in Colossians. So um, let's think circumcision for a second. Uh, it's, a gritty, it's a gritty thing. Um, you ever wonder, like, so Paul's, like, to Timothy, like, you need to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Did you ever, when, how old were you when, you when it dawned on you, like, who's checking? I was probably, like, in my 30s, like, who's checking this? Um, you'll be thankful to know that you live in probably, despite the, besides the Victorian age, you live in the most clothed age in the history of the world. And I'm thankful for this. We're actually one of the more modest, we're one of the more modest times and places in the history of the world. And we have this thing that the rest of the world doesn't really get, and that's privacy. Um, in the rest of the world, and certainly in the ancient world, you live pretty close to people. And there's so many ramifications with that. Uh, man, uh, you know, we outsource our death. Like when grandma gets sick, we put her in the, she gets old, she put her in the, Nursing only because she gets sick, we put her in the hospice. And then we pay somebody to deal with all of the, the unpleasantness of death. But for the vast majority of the history of the world, like, grandma's, grandma's in your living room. And you're sleeping next to her by the hearth. And you can hear her, her the, in a pre-morphine world, hear her have this awful, awful thing, you know, that, the screams and the smells and stuff like that, right? And so uh, in the ancient world, there, were no, there wasn't really much of a privacy, including your clothes, your public baths and stuff like that. So circumcision, when it seems to be such a private thing for us, seemed to be a little bit more public. And what was it? Well, it was to mark those boys as belonging to the nation of Israel. It was an inheritance sort of thing, right? And it was a... You're the ones that are thinking about the Messiah sort of thing. And why that part of the body? Well, the seed of the promise. And they were reminded multiple times a day of who they were. And they were marked. They were marked. By surgery, they were marked. They were branded as Israelites. They were set apart for something holy. And... Um, they were, back, they were circumcised on what day? The eighth day. Let's play with the number eight for a little bit. Uh, the number three means, right, Trinity, God. Four, four points of the, of the compass or, uh, you know, the symbol of earth. Uh, the number of completeness, uh, three plus four, right, spiritual and physical, seven. And so God created the heavens and earth in six days, and then he rests on the seventh day. And that seven-day week is still with us. 
kind of profound. Seven-day week is still with us. You know, I mean, I'm sure the communists tried like a 10-day week, maybe something like that, but it's hard to break away from that. But you want to know what the problem with the seven-day week is? There's always a stinking Monday. You go around and around and around and around. You know what you don't get to? Eight. You don't get to eight. Eight, because of the flood, because of circumcision, because of its elusiveness, because Jesus was resurrected not just on the first day, but the eighth day, always kind of had this sense of eternity. And then the writer of the Hebrews says, someday you'll have your eternal Sabbath rest. And the seventh day, instead of going back and starting the week over, you get to an elusive eighth day, that number of eternity. And so Jesus ushers in his new kingdom on the eighth day with the resurrection. That's why we call it the octave of Easter. And so eight, baptism, circumcision, heaven, crossing Jordan, kind of gets all wrapped up in this idea that I get my eternal sabbatical rest forever in heaven uh, on the eighth day. That's kind of cool when you think about it. Um, by the way, um, I know music has tried and, and can be counted in different ways, but at least in Western music, it's natural that it comes into an octave. Yeah? And as Martin Luther said, the closest thing to God besides, the closest discipline to, to, to God besides theology would be music. Right? Something cool going on there. Okay. So St. Paul then picks up that thing called circumcision and says, all right, um, you got babies who are marked. That's kind of like baptism, right? I don't know if he was thinking about the, the number eight or whatever. But then he applies it to this idea because he's talking, there's always in the background is the idea of circumcision is that do you have to get circumcised in order to be a good Christian. And he says the circumcision, yeah, was like, okay, you, and, and the, the word for circumcision is to cut around, peritome, to cut around. And uh, he, says, he says, yeah, so you cut around there, that's fine. Um, but what you really need is a cut around your heart to take away the, take away the sin. And so the connection there to baptism, right, that, that, God, that God is going to take away the sin, I think is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. All right, anybody on, on any more on circumcision? Any more awkward thoughts on circumcision? I'll tell you one story that's probably not going to be funny to, to any of you unless you're a white man over the age of 40. All right. uh, my father, um, also a pastor, thought he would be hilarious. And, uh, you know, like back when you had like, uh, I'm sure they still do it on uh, the local news, they would have the weather report and then maybe they would like, and someone's sending in the picture from, uh, you know, from Sandusky, the, you know, a picture of a sunset over Lake Erie, right, you know, and, and they would say the name or whatever. So we were living in Los Angeles area and he watched the news every night and he sent in a slide of some whatever nature thing. And uh, he said, and he signed it Perry Tomei. And he just thought he was hilarious. And he sat there, and he sat there with the VCR ready to hit record every night until it finally came on so he could, he could tell all three of his friends who knew Greek uh, that he did this. All right, I, should, I told you the only people that laughed were white men in their 40s. All right, older than 40s. Okay. Perry Tomei. All right. Um, let me now uh, maybe switch gears a little bit here. 
Uh, let's see where I want to. I want to switch things up here, so because I know the teachers are going to leave next time. Uh, we talked about the baptism of our Lord. Um, let's do some application things here. Um, so, um, one of the. By the way, what we're going to do next time is I'm going to hand out some sheets of discussion questions, break into groups, and get you guys uh, discussing a little bit more. But one of the discussion questions I'll have on there. I'm thinking specifically about the, about the teachers because you're on the front lines of a, a lot of this, is what happens when a, when, a, when a kid's parents or family challenge me on baptism? Why, why, are, you kids talking to, why are you talking to my kids about baptism in the school and stuff? I talk, I'm, we're here to, teach, here to have you teach them math, right? And um, how can we think that through and how can we react to that? The, the first thing I want you to think about is that it's never really about infant. It's about original sin and about faith. Okay. It may come off, they may think it's about infant baptism, but infant baptism is not the issue. The issue is original sin and faith. And so you gotta get to that, you gotta get to that level, you gotta get on that playing field because that's, your, that's gonna be your home turf. But it's also the, the issue at hand. The issue is can a child believe? And does a child need to be saved? And so original sin is, or nature sin is all wrapped up into this and faith. So I'm not going to, I won't say any more because hopefully we can have a discussion about it. But I want you to really think about how you would speak about faith to somebody who doesn't want to hear the church word or just thinks, oh, you just think it's a magical kind of thing, devoid of a cognitive decision. Right? So uh, I went to grad school at they called it the evangel. They, they called it the Vatican of Evangelicalism, Biola University, um, and they called me the token Lutheran in our cohort. Maybe I'll come back to that in a little bit. And uh, at WLC, on occasion, we get some. You know, we get some students that you know they've come here for a conservative Christian uh, uh, education, and they think everything's great until the the Lutheran preacher is talking about Holy Communion or baptism. And, and they're often very respectful, and thankfully they'll engage, and it's kind of fun, but they, are, they just cannot get over infant baptism. And so how, how, do you, how do you talk to them about it? And I, and I found, like, let's just talk about the nature of faith a little bit here. Like, how can you just say that faith is tied to a cognitive decision? Is that how you actually operate? that how you actually operate? And so I think that's maybe a, a fun way, and, a, and, and I think there's some fruit there when we think about that. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in, uh, maybe later as well. Okay. Let's see what other slides I got before we, we, we give you the stuff. Um, yeah, let me, let, me, let me talk about this, and then what I'd like to do is hand out the discussion things, and we'll take our break, right? And then we can come back and break it up into groups and hopefully have, have some, good, uh, some good fruitful discussions. I believe that this is a Lutheran moment. I really do. And um, here's why. Because we are leaving behind a modern world and entering into a postmodern world. So what does that mean? Um, well, let me, let me say this. There are three main philosophical eras, or let's say it's helpful to think about three main philosophical eras 
within our, within our memories. Let's talk pre-modern, think medieval. Let's think modern, think industrial revolution, scientific revolution. Let's think like 1615, 1600, up till 2000, and now postmodern. Now notice by the names, modernity or modernism uh, lives very large, lives very large. And we don't know where we're at, we just know we're post, we are after. We don't know exactly what's gonna come, but we are after modernity. So stay with me a little bit. Right. So a pre-modern person is going to think through a spiritual lens, and not always a scientific lens. Although modern science grew up out of this period, uh, it was still couched in spirituality. It could become superstitious, and that's, and that's, that's wrong. But the ancients really, really thought about things, and we can learn a lot from them. We can learn a lot from them. But again, I'm glad that I live in a modern and postmodern world when it comes to indoor plumbing, medicine, and all the rest. So, you know, uh, why does your, why does your uh, village in France have the plague? And an unsophisticated pre-modern person, medieval person, would say, obviously God's angry at us, right? A spiritual answer to a physical question. So what are we going to do about it? Well, it's obvious we burn the witches. Yeah. A modern person is going to say, you foolish people, you have a rat problem. And you want to know why you have a rat problem? Because you keep throwing your, your bedchamber pans into the streets, right? A scientific solution to a scientific question. But as we said before in that modern period, there was a dividing between the spiritual and the physical. So the deist is going to say, and by the way, this is a lot of the founding fathers of America, a deist is going to say, there is a God, but it's an impersonal God. He orders things, and, to, and, and there certainly isn't an interaction between God and the world and miracles. Jesus is a nice guy, but he is not the son of God. Atheists, of course, are going to say there is no spiritual realm. There is no soul. There is no there's no angels. There's no God. There's nothing. And even in Christianity, especially, and this is uh, for, for your pastors, pietism comes out of this, I think, is you separate the spiritual from the physical, and you privilege the spiritual over the physical. And you privilege the subjective, the individual, over the objective. This is where you get a downplay in baptism, by the way. Because it's no longer about um, that physical, objective reality of my baptism. It is, do I believe in my heart? Well, both are equally true, but you, can't play, you shouldn't play one off against, against, against each other. So this is, by the way, ironically, and it was, this impulse was always there, but this is where ironically we get, I think, the idea of, you know, card playing's bad, uh, drinking's bad, uh, like the old saying, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do, right? Um, you know, as one professor said, you certainly aren't gonna have dancing because dancing is a, uh, a vertical, a vertic how did that go? A vertical um, wish for a horizontal reality. And everything was like anti-body, anti-sex, 
anti-alcohol, right? And you have the extremes of that. And I think that's why you see in Protestant-leaning countries, you don't see, you have seen often less art, less music, um, less fashion. And in, in, in places that were still holding on to Roman Catholicism, it's a much more sensual food, sensual music, sensual dress, and we can criticize that. But I think there was this, there was this idea that the physical is bad. It's very Gnostic. The physical is bad and the spirit is good and became really dangerous because then it became easy to blame the physical and I, my, my true self, the soul is good. Yeah? So this is the, 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 the pathetic uh, uh, residuals of this is when somebody says, I'm spiritual but not religious. Oh, are you now? You don't really have a choice. Right? You really don't have a choice because you both have a, you have a body and a soul. You have both. You're an embodied soul. Okay. Some other things about modernity. Um, uh, a belief in human progress. Always progress, always progress, always progress. Um, history didn't matter much. We're always trying to throw off and shred off history so that we can go forward. Um, split between the physical and the spiritual. I think these were, these were things that were, could be good and could be bad. So the modern world was very rational, very scientific. A lot of good came out of that, but you could see that there's something bad with that. Just like the pre-modern, lots of good, lots of bad. Postmodern. Don't throw it under the bus just yet. It's a reaction to modernity, and there's some good things in there. There's some really horrible things in there, but there's some good things in there as well. Some of the good things. Um, we're becoming more holistic. And I mean that not in a weird way, but actually in a good way. We also are waking up um, ethically to a lot of things. That can be weird and bad, but it's also, I think, can be and hopefully will be a net good in the long run. Let me give you an example. So I think my grandparents for sure, um, greatest generation, World War II generation, um, I, I think they were very, the way that they thought, the way they designed their, their, their buildings, the way they, they thought and talked was, was all about progress. We're always going to get better. And um, that generation, as great as they were, were generally okay, especially in America, you know, a couple generations before that in Europe, because we didn't, although we went through a World War I, it was over there. World War I is kind of the beginning of the end of modernity, at least in the European sense. They thought that progress was so great that they were okay with the collateral damage along the way. Yeah, unions are good and, and that kind of stuff, but the, some people are gonna, some people are not gonna, some people are gonna have to suffer in the workforce, but we're progressing. There's gonna be some environmental damage, but we're progressing. We'll go to the movie, and in fact, they did. When they would go and buy a piece of fruit at the grocery store, they only thought about two things. The first one was the price, and the second one was the ripeness of the fruit. Fast forward a few generations, and what do people think about now? Well, a lot of people are just still thinking about this economic exchange. Well, a lot of people are also thinking about what? Is it ethically sourced? You've now added an ethical and therefore a spiritual component to an economic exchange. Think differently. 
think differently. And our kids in high school and college are not accepting the collateral damage to progress, whether it be environmentally or human. Now, they got their own problems. We don't need to bash them right now. But they got a point. They got a point. <clears throat> okay, think about that. Number two, I think history is becoming more popular, even though there's less history majors. Unfortunately, it's becoming a, a kind of a bully stick uh, a little bit. Um, but just think about the explosion of like Ancestry.com and, and, and all sorts of things like that. There's an interest in history, and that was kind of contrary to Henry Ford, who said, history is just one damn thing after another, who cares? In modern sense. Um, I think there is a, um, so again, holistically, putting things back together, the spiritual and the physical, can be a bad way, can be a good way. Um, I think more ethically in, uh, uh, attuned to things. And they're attuned to suffering. And here's the big difference between the pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. A pre-modern suffering was, this was a direct thing from God. And I need to take it. The modern mindset was that suffering has no meaning. Maybe in a sort of evolutionary idea, you could say that suffering led the species this way. I touch the hot stove once and then I don't do it again kind of thing. But generally, suffering had no meaning. And suffering was to be eradicated. In fact, that may have been the whole modern promise was to eradicate suffering. And you eradicate suffering by one of the three pills, the policy, psychology, therapy, or a pill, right, medicine, yeah? Well, all three of those things have done a lot of good, but have created more problems, right? We have an opioid epidemic, right? Government can be good, but can also be very bad. Um, we can therapize kids to, to anxiety, right? Like, you keep telling a kid that they're anxious all the time, guess what, they're probably gonna be anxious, right? We can be, the therapeutic self can be a problem as well. So we wake up in a, in a, and by the way, by the way, the ancients didn't commit suicide unless they did it for quote unquote uh, honorable reasons. They weren't honorable, but you know what I mean. They didn't really think about, suicide comes in the modern period, the late modern period. Why? Because there's no doctrine of suffering. There's no theology of suffering. So as we go into a postmodern world, I think what we're, we're asking identity questions, we're asking suffering questions, we're asking justice questions. I would suggest to us uh, Lutherans that this is a fantastic Lutheran moment because we have what's called the theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross talks about what is true and what is not through the word of God and not just because science says so, and yet we're not irrational. We don't throw reason out. I think we have a doctrine of suffering um, and that God uses suffering for our eternal good. I think we have an opportunity here, once again also, to put back the physical with the spiritual. And one of those places is baptism, and Holy Communion. And bringing those back to the historical foreground of the Christian religion and Christian worship. I think we have a great opportunity here. Um, I did my doctoral work in vocation. 
And vocation is when God calls us to, to certain jobs. And um, I'm old enough to remember that I heard about vocation. It was a curiosity, but nobody really taught it to me. Even in like the seminary days, it was sort of there. Now, if you know, vocation's everywhere. Why is that? Well, I think vocation fits that pattern of God's MO, that he uses ordinary physical things to do spiritual and extraordinary things, putting back the physical from the spiritual. It was in the air. It's been in the air for a few decades now, this idea of the physical and the spiritual coming together. And so all of a sudden, we're like theology of the cross, vocation, apologetic, communion, worship, baptism, all these topics come flooding back after being sort of curiosities for a couple hundred years, right? And so uh, there is an opportunity here. And every generation has an opportunity for a Lutheran moment, but I think ours right now is pretty unique. And the foreground where you get people in, I think, is baptism. And so to really connect that, that physical, intimate, I like that word intimate that we heard today, that intimate, I mean, what's more intimate than dying and rising with somebody? Right? There's an intimate relationship you have with Christ through this baptism. It's real. It's tangible. Right? Uh, there, there's something going on there that I think will really resonate with people who are looking for authenticity and the physical and the spiritual coming, coming together. Add on top of that technology and cell phones and all that kind of stuff, I think there's a great opportunity to have a very incarnational theology. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go two more minutes, and then we'll give an extra long break, if that's okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I told you I went to, the, to, to grad school at an evangelical school, and, and in my uh, application process, I had to write an essay on uh, explaining my, ex um, um, my conversion experience. So I said I was baptized, period. And uh, since my check didn't bounce, they accepted me. And uh, they were fine with that. I mean, they, didn't, they knew I was Lutheran, and they were not trying to make me un-Lutheran, right? Because this was grad school or whatever. So, and, and it was all cool. So it's a cohort of like, there's like 25 of us from around the world, all, um, all in ministry pastors, and from like Puerto Rico, Philippines, all that kind of stuff. And they're all evangelical except me. They called me the, the, the token Lutheran. And... Um, it was just remarkable because I'm, I'm already a fish out of water and I'm kind of the dumbest guy in the class too. And, um, and yet the professors like I had J.P. Moreland, Garrett DeWeese, uh, David Horner, and um, they, would, they would literally defer to me, which was awkward, on certain things. Art, history, and like the sacramental nature of the church. They knew that there was an incarnational thing to Lutheranism that they didn't get. And um, these were all honest men and, and, and just fantastic men. And sometimes the, the conversations were really fantastic because, our, and, and like I'd overhear, you know, in a break at class, and this, this one guy was like, you know what we've been doing in my church lately? It's really been cool. Uh, you know, talking worship and how, how it affects people. It's like, we've been reciting the Nicene Creed. Garrett DeWeese, uh, the first day of class, said, hey, you're going to be here in L.A. for two weeks because we had to go two weeks in January. And, um, um, and uh, 
he was like, well, you're going to be here for a weekend, and so here's the famous churches, you know, the Crystal Cathedral and Calvary and Saddleback and all these mega churches. He's like, I go to the small Baptist church on the road, and he said, this is why I do it. They have Holy Communion every week. Now, he's got different sets of Holy Communion, but you could tell it was real and authentic for him. Uh, Warren Saddleback, whatever his name, Rick Warren, uh, he said, I can't explain it. One day he said, I can't explain it, but I have more people who come to Christ on communion Sundays than I do every other Sunday. Not the same communion as us, and we, you know, but they, there was something, right? And those guys would talk incarnational. They all knew that their evangelical mindset was at a crossroads. Why is it? Well, think about it. If I'm right that there's pre-modern, modern, post-modern, greater or lesser extent. And the modern world is a certain way, and we're moving into a different way of thinking, whether for good or ill. America has only known the modern world. And evangelicalism has only known the modern world. Free will. Right? Split between the physical and the spiritual. Sort of a little bit of an anti-art, anti-historic kind of feel, right? That's very American. You throw off all that fancy stuff, right? I think we're at a crossroads. I think we're at a crossroads. And it may seem like we're bursting at the seams culturally. I don't see it that way. I see, I see, I see great opportunity to be Lutheran. And what I mean by Lutheran is classical Christian. C.S. Lewis Christianity, that kind of stuff. Not just Lutheranism as a, as a, as a, as a denomination, but that idea that we're just doing what the church has always done, we're just trying to, we're just trying to get, get rid of what was bad and keep what is good, that we're in the direct line from the apostles, right? This authentic Christianity that spurred on great art, great architecture, great music, modern science, all of these deep kind of things, right? Um, that it's authentic and it's real and it's ugly and it's messy and all the rest. And I think baptism is helpful starting point with that. There's a lot of imagery here. There's a lot of beauty here. It brings the sp spiritual and the physical together. And I think it answers the identity question very well that's been going on in our world right now. Fair enough? Fair enough? Okay. So I think we have a 10-minute break. Is that correct, sir?